Hey there, it's Nick. This is a sort of sequel to our 2014 episode featuring Daryl Davis called The Silver Dollar. Be sure to listen to that one first before this one. Thanks. I've been thinking a lot, especially in terms of this election, and noticing like a really substantial shift in how people talk to each other and how people argue. And for myself, I feel like just the, the rhetoric has just gotten so overheated mm-hmm. and people feel really threatened, you know? And I think when people feel scared, they start arguing from this place of, you know, of emotionality, which is yeah. totally understandable, yeah. but it's also not very effective in terms of kind of converting people. Right. So I guess my first question is just kind of like, what specifically, in all the conversations that you've had with these clan guys, what do you think that you do differently that a lot of other people don't? I think what I do differently is I give them a platform to express their views honestly in a safe place where you know they're dealing with their alleged enemy, a black person. I give them a space in which they can express their views without fear of attack or retaliation or whatever, and allow them to discuss them, and most importantly, have a conversation with them. You don't have to respect what they're saying, but you need to respect their right to say it. Nobody wants to be wrong. We all want to be right. And so if somebody says something to you that goes against you know, what you have believed from the day you were born, but there's a little spark that says that, that piques your curiosity that you think that person might be right, you know, you're going to begin to shift in that direction. It might not be an overnight turnaround, but over time. I've never gone and said, you know what, you need to get out of this organization, you know, you need to stop this nonsense, blah, blah, blah. Or I don't go on, on CNN and talk about them and bash them and, and then tell them to send me their robes and hoods. <laughs> it, 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 that doesn't work. It's, it's like dog fighting. You get a dog that's already predisposed to being mean. And, you know, there's certain breeds, you know, that have that disposition, say a Rottweiler, a uh, pit bull, or what have you. And they take these dogs and they beat these dogs, even beat them even more and make them even meaner. And then they put them in the, uh, in the pit with the, with the other dog to fight. So it's like that. You know, if you have something that's mean and you're mean to it, you're making it meaner. You, you can't beat the meanness out of it. By beating it, you're increasing it. Same thing with hate. You know, if somebody hates you and you're beating on them, you know, they're going to hate you more. It's not like, you know, you, you, I'm going to beat the hate out of you. Uh-uh. But you can drive the hate out with logic and love and respect. Mm-hmm. And that's the example that I have set. And, and for me, it has worked. So if we go down to the list of, like, kind of how to argue. Well, near the top would be gather your information, get an astute knowledge of the other person's side before meeting them. Okay. You know, review it in your head. Be, be as familiar with their position, you know, as you are with your own. Okay. So it's lesson one. Yeah. You know, because that way you can pretty much know what to expect and know how to react. You might hear things that frighten you. You might hear things that make you angry or make you sad or hurt you. But these are words. And you go in there because that person has 
an opposing point of view. And that's what you're looking for. That, that's why you're there interviewing that person, to, to find out why they think that way, why they want to do these things. Well, of course, you're going to hear things that you don't agree with. But if you go in knowing that, then you know, you know what? You need to keep your cool. Okay. That's number one. And then number two would be to invite them to have a conversation, not a debate. Have a conversation. You know, What's the distinction? Well, a debate is, you know, I'm going to make my point, and you're going to make your point, and we're going to you know, fight it out verbally. That's a debate, you know, where, where you're going to argue something. That tends to have them get their guard up. You say, hey, you know, I want to have a conversation with you. I want to understand. I want to understand why you feel the way you feel. I, I want you to convince me that I need to change my way of thinking. And I appreciate your sharing your views with me. I'm interested in how you feel. And that's what a lot of people want. They, you know, they want to be heard. They want to, they want to be able to speak their mind freely without fear of retaliation or somebody you know, beating them over the head for their views or ramming their own views down this person's throat. Okay. So give them that. All right. Number three. What's number three on the list? Num- number three. Look for commonalities. Okay. And, and you can find that in five minutes. Something. All right. Even with your worst enemy. If you spend 10 minutes with that person, you'll find even more. All right. You're not going to agree on everything, but you'll find something. All right. So find those commonalities. And you build upon those commonalities. Like, for example, I don't like you because you're white and I'm black. So I don't like white people or something. All right. And I don't like anything you stand for. You disgust me. It's because of you. I can't get a job where I'm making as much as you are. And I've got the degree that qualifies me for that job. And you're a high school dropout. And so our our contention is based upon our races. But you're like... um, how do you feel about all these drugs on the street and these meth labs that are popping up and all that kind of stuff? Well, I don't like it. I think, you know, you know the law needs to crack down more on drugs and, and you know, people get drugs too easy and become addicted to, to all this stuff very easily and it's, it's destroying our society. So you say, well, yeah, I agree. I agree, I, I agree 100%. You know, in fact, uh, you might even tell me, you know, that, that your son has started dabbling in drugs or whatever. Uh, and it's, you know, drugs don't discriminate against anybody. The wealthy, the poor, the black, the white, the whatever. Drugs will take you out. So now I'm seeing, you know what? You want the same thing I want. Because I'm seeing that drugs are affecting your family the same way they might affect my family. So now we're in agreement. So let's, let's focus on that. And as we focus more and more and find these more things in common, the things that we have in contrast, such as skin color, begin to matter less and less. That relationship begins to blossom into a friendship. That's number three. Number four, when two enemies, and this applies to anything, it doesn't have to do with, it, it, it can be about race, it can be about anything, any hot topic, abortion, uh, nuclear weapons, the environment, global warming, the war overseas, whatever. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. They might be yelling and screaming, and disagreeing and beating their fists on the table to drive home a point, but at least they're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you want to keep the conversation going. And the more you keep the conversation going, even though you might be disagreeing or yelling and screaming, 
The more you keep the conversation going, the more commonalities you will eventually find. You'll find yourself on the same page. But when you can't talk to one another, then you're laying the groundwork for trouble. So that's that was four, right? That, that was four, at? yeah. That was so four. What's five? Is there a five? Well, well how many do you need? <laughs> as many as as many as you got. Like I would think, I think one would be be patient. Yeah, patience, absolutely. And you know, people say uh, with me, they're really surprised that I have have been able to do what I've what I've done. And they say, you know what, Daryl, I would not have the patience to sit down with those people. I I just don't have the time for that kind of stuff. You know what? I hate to use a cliche, but patience is a virtue. And you have to have patience. Race relations and the racial animus that is the underlying fabric of our country has been around since the first slaves landed on these shores. And the problem is we have not communicated with one another. And now we, we can find ways to do it. But it's going to take time. And each method, you know, my method works for me. And the reason why my method works for me is because I've taken the time and the patience to learn about the other side. I've read tons of material on on the Klan, on the neo-Nazis, on white supremacy, on black supremacy. So I know how the mentality works. And, and when I go in there, I tend to be a little more disarming than someone who does not have that background, that knowledge. Because while they may not like me because of what I look like and my skin color, they respect me. And I know, you know, uh, there comes a point in time where you say, okay, enough time. You know, now things have got to change. Yeah, but spend the time first before you start trying to force a change. Spend that time first. And then, you know, if that's not working and you need to legislate something or force something, then fine. You, ha- you have those tools available. That's why we have lawmakers. All right. But the day the law changed to where black people could ride in the front of the bus or not have to give up their seat. The day that law changed did not necessarily change the minds of the white riders. You know, you can, you can legislate behavior, but you can't legislate belief. Patience is what it takes. But patience doesn't mean sitting around on your butt waiting for something to happen. You know, be proactive. And don't just sit around and talk with your friends who believe the way you do. Invite other people who have differences of opinion. Invite them to your meeting, to your table. Learn from them. Because while you are actively learning about somebody else, at the same time, you are passively teaching them about yourself. And I can tell you right now, that's a, I'm going to say that again. That sounds so good. While you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. You only have one chance, one chance to make a good first impression upon someone. What enabled me, after I got that first meeting with these people who don't like me because of the color of my skin, What enabled me to get a second meeting with them and a third and a fourth? And whenever I want to, just call them up and say, hey, man, what are you doing? Come on down to my house or come out and have lunch with me. Ride around my car with me while I go run some errands up in your county. What made them say yes? They didn't like me. And and they didn't know they were meeting with a black man that first time. They thought they were meeting some white guy or something, right? What made them come back again the second time? Obviously, I made a good first impression on them. 
If I had made a bad first impression, I would not have had the second, third, fourth opportunities to correct it. So that's the list of do's. What's, what is the list of pitfalls and don'ts? What are the things to avoid? Okay, the things to avoid is this. You can become argumentative, but don't become condescending. Don't become insulting. You're going to hear things that you don't like. You're going to hear things that you know are absolutely wrong. Yes, you're going to hear opinions, and everybody's entitled to their opinion. Okay, and their opinion may be ridiculous, but you'll also hear things that are not opinions that they're going to put out as facts. Uh, you know, there are more black people on welfare than white people. Well, that's not true. You know, that, that is not a fact. And you should counter that and correct that. But don't do it in a, in a, in a manner that is insulting or condescending because you, kn- you know they're wrong and you're going to beat them over the head for being wrong. You know, explain it calmly collectively and show them the data or say, I will get the data for you. Or if you really believe what you're telling me, because I know it's wrong, but if you really believe it, then bring me the stats. Show me the stats. I would think also, and I, I see this a lot in terms of like arguments online and stuff like that, but people, they'll start arguing almost with what their perception is of that person's movement. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So... Would you put that on the list as well? I would. I would say, don't explain somebody else's movement initially. Let them explain it. And then address the points in particular that they have defined. You may know about their movement. You should know about their movement. As I said in point number one, do your homework. Learn everything you can about their movement so that they will respect you. But don't start off by defining their movement for them, telling them what it is and why and why it's going to hell in a handbasket and why it's wrong. Let them define the movement. And as they define it, there will be key points that you know you can counter and shut down. But let them finish. Don't just cut them off and jump right in and, and start going on the attack. Give them a little more rope. Say, look, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not there yet. I need a little more clarification, a little more explanation from you. Like, for example, you said blah, blah, blah. I'm not quite clear on that. Can you give me a little more as, as to why you really believe that or why you think I should accept that? And let them elaborate some more. And they'll come out with these key points that you, that you probably already know because you've done your homework. And then you can address those key points. And then go to the point that they made. Don't put words in their mouth. Quote them and then attack those points rather than shut them down with what you know about them. And they will respect you for that. You deal with these like very, very extreme people where, you know, the, the rationale, in, in my view, obviously I'm biased, but the rationale is very, very weak. Do you think that this kind of method that that you're advocating do you think it can work kind of in the more mushier middle of of political discourse yes i do the approach is similar but you know we are xenophobic in this country americans do not travel as much as say europeans we just don't do it and 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 when we do do it 
where do we go? We go to some place that is a resort, you know, where we see a lot of people who look like us. You know, we need to get out of that comfort zone. So the, the approach is similar to where you want to draw people out, but you're not necessarily drawing people out who belong to an organization that is as extreme. These people um, are fearful of people who look different, but you got to remind them that you're dealing with a certain sect of that religion. Um, just like the Ku Klux Klan claims to be Christian. These people who are supporting this travel ban, most of them are Christian too. But are they the same Christians as the Klan? Ask them that. The Klan says, says they're Christian. Are you, are you the same as the Klan? Oh, well, no, no, I don't support the Ku Klux Klan. Well, guess what? They're Christian. Well, no, the Klan, you know, I, I don't consider them Christian. Well, guess what? There are Muslims here and abroad who do not support the Muslims that are doing all this destruction and all this terrorism. So why are you going to paint that religion with a broad brush but not paint your own? You know, you got to show them different perspectives to get them to see that. And then they'll say, well, you know, I see what you're saying, but how do you tell? Well, you know what? Why should I let any, any white people into my neighborhood? How do I tell that they're not Klan unless they're wearing their robe and hood? You might be a Klanswoman. You might be a Klansman in your suit and tie. How do I tell? You know, we need to come up with ways to, to figure this stuff out. But we don't do it by discriminating against other people unless we have valid proof. I was surprised to read you divided the fan guys that you interact with as, you know, some of them are just ignorant and some are stupid. Yes. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, to me, an ignorant person is someone who makes the wrong choice, the wrong decision, because he or she does not have the proper facts to make the right decision or a good choice. If you give that person the facts, then you have alleviated their ignorance and they can make the right choice, the correct decision. A stupid person is someone who has the facts, who has the right information, but they still make the wrong choice or an incorrect decision. For example, if, if I have a room and I paint all the walls in the room and they're wet and I post no signs that say wet paint, stay off the walls. So anybody walking into that room is ignorant to the fact that these walls are wet. And they might go and lean up against the wall and thus get paint on their clothes. So I can cure that by putting up signs that say wet paint, stay off the walls. I can stand in the doorway in which each person comes in. and I can tell each person, gather around the center, stay away from the walls. They're wet. I just painted them 10 minutes ago. So now everybody has the facts. Everybody has the proper information. Uh, to make the right choice. So if I do all that, and still somebody goes and leans up against the wall, and then wants to know why they got paint on their clothes, it's because they're stupid. They had the right information, they had the facts, and they chose not to use it. That's stupidity. 
There is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education. Unfortunately, there is no cure for stupidity. Do you feel like, I mean, you've now talked to, I mean, must be hundreds of white supremacists. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you can assess fairly quickly now? Oh, indeed. Yes, which, absolutely. Which of those two camps they fall into? Absolutely, yeah. And what, what are the signs of that that you look for? Um, those who, who, are, who are resistant to, um, to sitting down and talking and who, 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 who don't ask questions immediately, those are the ones who, who tend to be more, and that goes for anybody, not just white supremacists. It could be black supremacists. It could be anybody, Asians, Hispanics, regular black people, regular white people. When I say regular, I mean those who are not affiliated with uh, hate groups. Anybody. Like, for example, if, um, if, I, if I run into you, and I say, um, hey, Nick, you know, what do you think of, um, of Donald Trump's policy on blah, blah, blah? You're going to tell me what you think, and then you're going to say, well, so what do you think? Because you want to know my opinion, right? And if it, if it gels with yours, fine. We move on to the next subject. If it doesn't, then, you know, we have a conversation about it, and you explain why you think, you know, what you think, and I, you know, come back and counter with why I think what I think. People like that. Uh, it's a lot easier to to be an influence upon because they're willing to listen. One thing that I noticed with most of these people who I dealt with, the the uh, the, the racist people, was when I first would interview them, <clears throat> they would not ask me any questions. I would I would be the one asking all the questions, and they would answer those questions, or they would say I'd rather not answer that because it was personal or it might incriminate them or whatever. Um, but they would, they would answer my questions, but they would never ask my opinion. Cause you know, I might say, well, so, you know, you know, what do you think about Martin Luther King? And they tell me, you know, he was a communist, you know, uh, he, he, he was a rabble rouser. He was this, he was that. Uh, and, and he, he brought about a lot of, uh, of a destruction of our country because everywhere Martin Luther King appeared, there was a riot. So they blame it on him, right? Yeah, that's not their twist. But, but then they wouldn't turn around and say, well, what do you think about him? Because I had no value. I am inferior. They are superior. So I have no information you know, that, I can, that I can give them that, that is of any use to them. So they don't bother to ask me anything. And as time progressed, then all of a sudden they would say, well, what do you think? Then I realized, oh, my goodness. You know, I have an opinion. I, I have some value. They want to know what I think. So that broke the ice. They're, they're open to hearing what I'm going to say. And so oftentimes when I would say something that really just made common sense, it had a profound effect on them. The profound effect may not have manifested itself immediately right there at the table where we're talking, but over time they would end up leaving the Klan or the neo-Nazi party or whatever, and it was a result of that conversation. They had turned that thing around and around their head because it made more sense than what they have believed for so long. And when you have believed something since day one, and you have been living in that echo chamber, in that bubble where everything you say is reflected back at you by your peers who are also in that bubble with you, that clan group or what have you, you're not going to just change overnight. It has, to, it has to work itself off. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm overweight right now, so I didn't put on this gut overnight. And I'm, I'm damn sure not going to lose it by tomorrow, no matter how bad I want to. 
I have to work at it. I think we had somewhat similar upbringings in that, you know, my, my parents are not from this country. Right. So I spent a lot of time overseas. Over, overseas grew up in Boston. As very, did I. Very, yeah, right. Um, which uh, I guess you had a very different experience than I had grown <laughs> up there. But uh, but I felt like like very much in this bubble there that the few times that I've interacted with people who are on the other side of the political spectrum... It's, it's so rare for me to even get the opportunity to have that conversation that I'm like, I'm kind of an anthropologist about it. I'm just like, I'm just really curious. Mm-hmm. And I've often found, I remember, I remember being at this one party in Boston and there was this one conservative guy there and all these people were just like totally getting in his face, you know, just mm-hmm. telling him what they believed instead of trying to understand what and he and was all that was doing was reinforcing what he believed right right and 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 I was coming at it just like this is so strange to me I just want to understand it so I just asked him a lot of questions mm-hmm. was not trying to change his opinion or anything but right. try to understand that and I remember at the end of the party he came up to me before he left and he said you're you're not like other liberals I, I you know I've had people tell me the same thing you know you're not you're, you're not like other black people Right. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and what I do is oftentimes, after I get to know them a little bit, I'll bring over some of my friends, some of my black friends, some of my Jewish friends, some of my other white friends, all who who uh, don't subscribe to the racist belief. All right? And allow, you know, the, the person that I'm interviewing or my, or my racist friend or whatever, interact with them. So they realize, no, Daryl Davis is not an exception necessarily. Maybe the racist is the exception. Right. All right? Because now they're sitting here talking to a Jewish guy, another white guy who feels the same way the black guy feels, and the same way the Jewish guy feels. And um, so now you're the odd one out. You know, and, and, you know, and, and not attack this person, but just have a conversation like we're having right now. And they have to go home and think about that. I saw an interview with you and one of your clan friends. He attended your wedding. Uh-huh. And he had left. Few the of them clan. did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, this guy he had left the clan, uh-huh. but he still was against miscegenation. Yeah, yeah. Still came to your wedding. Yeah. You have a white wife. Yeah, that's right. And guess what? He invited myself and my white wife over to his house for Christmas dinner. Right. That's got to okay, be now, say, frustrating. Now, now here, here. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you one more that's even more frustrating. The person you're talking about, his name is Bob White, Robert Bob White. White. Yeah. Okay. Bob White, he went to prison for, he he was the Grand Dragon of the Maryland Ku Klux Klan. And while he was Grand Dragon, he um, conspired to bomb a synagogue up on Liberty Road in Baltimore. And he went to prison uh, for four years for that. He still ran the Klan from within the prison through his Grand Clayliff, which means like a vice dragon, on the outside. When he got out three years later, he continued running the Klan. And um, some years later, he got busted again, this time for assault with intent to murder two black men with a shotgun up in the Woodlawn area of Baltimore. And this time he served three years in prison. So uh, I was writing my book right around the time that he was due to get out of prison for the second thing. And, uh, and I contacted him, and I did not let him know that I was black. I, I wrote him letters and stuff, and he, he, he wrote me back. You know, he even sent me a Christmas card. 
Um, but anyway, um, Bob White, you don't get um, an income from being a Klan leader unless you're stealing money out of the dues. You have to have a regular job. It's like Boy Scout leader. You know, you don't make, you don't make a ton of money being a Boy Scout leader. It's a title. Bob White was a Baltimore City police officer. And um, he told me countless stories of things that he had done. And some things I'm not going to repeat on tape. But um, he was not a good person. Vehemently racist, very anti-Semitic, very um, anti-black, etc. Uh, but over time, he and I, be, he agreed to sit down and talk with me, even after he found out that I was black. And he'd be the one pounding his fist on the table, trying to drive home his points, not asking me any questions. You know, you know, everything was the fault of black people and Jewish people. And, you know, if, you know, if we didn't try to force our way upon, upon white civilization, you know, this country was founded by, by white people. It was built by white people. He doesn't mention on the backs of slaves. And the Constitution was written by white people and signed by white people. And if people, you know, would, would learn and understand that and respect that, then everybody could get along. You know, that was his take, and that's what he had to drive home to me. But over time, he, he began to find out, you know, that, um, no, you know, he began listening to me, and he began changing over time. Um, he did not like miscegenation at all. And at the time, I had a white girlfriend. And so um, I even brought her over to, my house, over to his house, you know. And you know, he would talk with her, and... It was obviously, you know, that she loved me, and whether he liked it or not, uh, I mean, he, he was cordial and polite and hospitable, uh, but he began, you know, ordinarily he would have seen her as a race traitor, and there's nothing more than a Klansman hates, even more than black people, is to see a white person with a black person, because you have sold out your own, you have betrayed your race, you're a race traitor. All right, so anyway, uh, Bob grew fond of her. And, um, you know, when, when I decided to, to marry her, uh, I invited him to my wedding. And, um, and he came. And CNN um, interviewed him, you know, a few months before my wedding. And they said to him, they said, well, you know, you know Daryl is, is getting married and, um, and, and the woman he's marrying is white. Are, are you going to go to his wedding? And Bob said, well, I'll, I'll be there if Daryl invites me. And I said, well, you know, you know you're invited. You're definitely going to come, right? And he goes, yeah, if you want me there, I'm there. And so the interviewer from CNN said, reporter said, um, well, wait a minute. You know, you went through all this stuff. You know, you don't like to see blacks and whites uh, intermix and there's miscegenation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, why would you go to Daryl's wedding when he's marrying a, a, a white woman? And Bob's only response was, because it's Daryl. You know, that, that somehow mitigated any, any problem he had. And I've gotten used to it. But for somebody who doesn't understand it, like perhaps yourself, you're looking for rationale. You're looking for logic. To, to be racist, number one, is to be irrational. There is no rationale to why you should hate somebody or, or disapprove of somebody because of the color of their skin. There's no rationale in that whatsoever. So if you're going to be irrational to begin with by being a racist, then of course you're going to do irrational stuff, like hang out with a black guy, go out and have dinner with him, go to his wedding. It makes perfect sense. And, and do, you, do you feel that frustration yourself? In the beginning, yes. 
But Bob changed, you know, even after that interview. Believe it, uh, I'll have to find it for you. But um, he sent me uh, an email, which I still have. And he, said, he, he thanked me for inviting him to the wedding. Uh, he and his wife really had a good time. And, uh, and he said, you know, um, your wedding w was done just, just the way white people do their weddings. And so I called him and I said, man, what on earth did you expect at my wedding? And he goes, man, I didn't know. You know, I, I don't know if it would be like a, like a jungle wedding or cannibals or what. I mean, at the cannibal thing, he was just joking with me. But, um, but he didn't know what to expect, right. you know. And when he got there, he saw Hispanic people. He saw some Asian people. He saw black people, white people, Jewish people, all kinds of people, people that looked just like him. I even had some other clan people there, you know. Not, they, they didn't come to my wedding in their robes and hoods, right? But, uh, you know, he, he saw everybody there getting along and having a good time. And they all were there to celebrate my marriage, you know, to my wife. And he celebrated it too. And and we would get together after that and go over to his house, go out and have dinner with him and his, and his wife. And things like and, You know, now Bob didn't dance. His wife liked to dance. So when they would come to my gigs, uh, sometimes, I, you know, in the middle of a song, I would leave the stage and walk out. And people on the dance floor dancing, I'd walk out to his table and I'd grab his wife and pull her up on the dance floor and dance. <laughs> I didn't even ask him permission, you know. And ha have his views on miscegenation changed? Since his views changed. Um, you know, I, I would not say that he he a hundred percent changed, but getting there, getting there. I have to ask you since. Uh... Since you know so many clan guys, like what do they what do they make of Trump? Oh, they all love him. They all love him. You know, he um he campaigned on their own platform. They they had that platform long before anybody ever heard of Donald Trump. You know, I, I played for Trump, you know, back in I don't know, ninety nine or two thousand or something. Really? Yeah. Long before he ever got into politics. Now, let me say this about Donald Trump. Every racist that I know and I know a lot of racists. Every racist I know voted for Donald Trump. However, that does not, and I expressly repeat it, that does not mean that everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist. There are plenty of people, even friends of mine, good friends of mine, who are not racist, who, and who, who voted for Donald Trump. A lot of people wanted a change from what they had been accustomed to for the last decades whether it was Obama, whether it was Clinton, whether it was Bush, whether it was um, Carter or whoever, they want a change of the status quo, a changing of the guard. And Donald Trump talked the talk. And they were willing to overlook his uh, misogyny, his um, racist and bigoted comments or whatever. They just wanted that change. They were not, you know, they were not racist people, but every racist I know did vote for him because he, he campaigned on a campaign of fear, of fear of outsiders who had all our jobs, who were taking our money, uh, who were coming into our country and committing crimes and all this other kind of stuff. That's the, that's the same stuff we heard from the Klan. We've been hearing from the Klan ever since they were born, you know? So finally they got the most powerful man in the world to say the exact, the exact same thing that they've been saying for decades, for over a century, you know they're going to vote for him, and and they got their wish. 
And I, how does that make you feel? Like as a well, you know what? I think personally, I feel that Donald Trump is the best thing that has happened to this country, and I'll say why. Because as a result of his winning the election, all of the stuff that this country has denied for so long has now come to surface. We can no longer deny racism exists in abundance in this country. We are now in a global fishbowl. Everybody is looking at us. We are very hypocritical. We preach to other people how they should lead their country. We brag about being a country of equality, democracy, and equal rights, and da-da-da-da. And yet we don't live up to that. People turn a blind eye to racism in this country. Oh, come on. The Klan, you know, they, they, they vanished back in the 50s and 60s. No, they're still here. Yes, racism has been mitigated. People are saying, you know, well, where, where's all this racism coming from? I, I never knew, you know, it's, it's all new. No, it's not new. It's always been here. What's new is they're getting a lot more attention now because they feel emboldened by the most powerful man in the world who is repeating their rhetoric. That's why they're coming out from under the carpet, behind the rock, out of the woodwork. What we're seeing is just a resurgence of that which already exists. And I think it's a good thing because you cannot address what you can't see. And the people who did not believe it can no longer turn a blind eye because it's right there and now we have to address it. You go skiing and you have a ski accident. Your leg is fractured. You go to the doctor and he tells you, the way your leg is fractured, I'm going to have to break the bone and reset it. Donald Trump is breaking the bone of this country. He is breaking the bone. And it's going to have to be reset. And this time, when it gets reset, we all are going to start off on even ground. And we're going to have to build it together. And when we build it together, then it belongs to all of us afresh. Here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for Love and Radio. The show is produced by Jesse Carrier, Stephen Jackson, and myself. We are a production of PRX's Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia is supported by MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork, by the Knight Foundation, and most importantly, by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Here's one poem one of our listeners wrote as an iTunes review. <clears throat> Snowmen melt by T. Manning. Snowmen melt, trees die, pets run away, horse fly. Presents open, fires burn, holiday end, earthworm. Chairs break, dogs trip, speakers tweak, hair lip. 
Carpet dirty, traps fail, otters poop, blue whale. Thank you, T. Manning, for that uh, amazing poem. And all the other listeners who have written terrible poetry and posted it to our iTunes page. And thank you for listening. <laughs>